Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, February 26, 2013. I'm <laughs> looking at what I want to do here. This is going to be a um, teaching heavy episode of Fighting for the Faith. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of very inaccurate falsehoods being said about God by people who are supposedly Christian theologians. It doesn't make sense that that's the case. But then again, there's nothing great about the great apostasy, if you know what I mean. Okay, so I'm looking at what I need to do today. It's going to take <laughs> it's going to take the whole program. There okay, so let, let's let, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do and then we're going to do it. And we're just going to have to dive right into it because yes, to, yesterday's program kind of set the stage for today's program, if you know what I mean. Um, because yesterday we did part one of uh, Tony Jones discussing the atonement on the Harvest Show. Today we're going to be looking at part two of that. And uh, what, because of what he does, it, it's going to require me to offer not only a biblical but a historical refutation of the assertions made by Tony Jones on this Harvest Show, which then again begs the question, why on earth would Drew Summerall have... Tony Jones on their program to basically pour acid on the biblical teaching regarding what Christ was doing on the cross. You are going to hear some crazy things today, and we're going to have to take some time to unravel this and debunk the uh, bunk theological statements made by Tony Jones. So if you remember yesterday, kind of the main point of the program was that uh, your sources matter when it comes to theology. What's your source? Is your source the sure, certain, inerrant uh, word of God? Or is it 
theological speculation, your beliefs, uh, your experiences. I mean, yesterday, uh, Phil Pringle's um, message from the C3 Presence Conference, I mean, it was an utter train wreck. It, it was absolute gobbledygook. And, I mean, I my jaw was on the floor. And listen, I, I do this for a living. I see a lot of bad things or hear a lot of bad sermons. And even I was uh, in a kerfuffle over what I, I was listening to yesterday from Phil Pringle. But unfortunately, this is becoming more and more the standard. It's as if somehow within the visible church, you know, the church that calls itself Christian, you know, we can just make up anything we want. We can choose any old source we want to drink from, say that this is sound theology, say that this is sound doctrine, and people drink it, not realizing that they're drinking sludge, filth, garbage. It's, it, this isn't the pure word of God. It's far from it. And yet this is what's happened to in, in the church. <sighs> anyway. So, all right, let's talk about what we're going to do because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to get into a, a mode where I'm going to start going on a rant and I, I, I'm going to end up cutting myself short as far as the time that I need to do what I need to do on this program because there's going to be a lot of teaching. So we're going to do three things today. We are going to do, uh, we're going to take a look at Tony Jones's discussion regarding the atonement on the harvest show. This is part two and it'll be uh, two of two. This, you know, this is a two-part little mini-series that we've done here. Then we're going to switch gears after the break, and we're going to be listening to somebody who's going to be making their first appearance here at Fighting for the Faith, and it's a charismatic teacher by the name of Jonathan Welton. And Jonathan Welton is going to provide what I would consider the most egregious and false-on-its-face arguments against the idea of women pastors. It's unbelievable what he does here, and he's basically bamboozling the people in his crowd. And the funny thing is is that, you know, the name of his website is like the Welton Academy. I mean, he kind of puts himself forward as, you know, some kind of a, you know, academician, you know, type of thing. You know, he's he's there teaching people the, the, the truth about God's word. And yet, I mean, his argument is so bad. That, I mean, literally a first-year, first-week Greek student could debunk one of his arguments. It's it's just that bad. And then, uh, and, and then <laughs> since we're going to be talking about women in the ministry um, and, uh, and be giving you the biblical teaching on this, I thought it would behoove us to end the, uh, the program with a sermon review from the Crossing Church in Elk River, Minnesota. We're going to be listening to Eric Dykstra's wife, Kelly Dykstra, uh, preach on First Kings chapter eighteen from her year uh, from their year of faith sermon series. Yeah, um, unfortunately, um, Eric Dykstra's doctrinal improvement has been derailed, and he is now literally syncret- <laughs> trying to syncretize the biblical gospel with like Joel Osteen's teaching and. It's an absolute train wreck what's happening up there. And so we're going to be listening to an, a Kelly Dykstra sermon and uh, reviewing that today. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. In fact, so much ground that um, you know I'm hoping that I can actually do everything justice today. So with that, I think we should dive right into the program proper. And since we're doing an Emergent Church update, here's our Emergent Church update music.
These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Doug Padgett. Tony Jones sitting in second fiddle today. This is their spirit-led uh, rendition of uh, Strauss's also sprung Zarathustra. As you can tell, they've been set free from the limiting definitions of modernist notes and are just able to just let the spirit guide them and breathe through them as they breathe new life into this song. Here, listen in. There's nothing like postmodern music, <laughs> and uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, because if you know it's postmodern, you can just avoid it like the plague. Okay, like yesterday, we were talking about Tony Jones's appearance on uh, the, the television program called The Harvest Show. He was interviewed uh, by one of the regular guests, Drew Summerall, at, regarding Tony Jones's uh, book, ebook out there, The Better Atonement. And uh, yesterday we got to hear Tony Jones give us his definition of theology, and theology is basically everything. And as soon as theology becomes everything, then it becomes nothing, because like I've pointed out yesterday, theology, Christian theology, is an observational science. We must look into the written Word of God, because all Scripture, the written Word of God, um, is God breathed and is profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, so the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. In other words, um, when it comes to what was Jesus doing on the cross, okay, coming up with an answer to that theologically is impossible. And this is what I mean impossible to do without a revelation from God telling us what Jesus was doing on the cross. To any observer who was happened to be outside of the just outside the walls of Jerusalem on that particular Friday, you know, they would have been walking into into Jerusalem and you know and they would have noticed that the sun had been darkened. You know, um strange things were afoot and they would have noticed three crosses out there on Golgotha and, you know, and there was Jesus. They may have heard him saying things like, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Or he may, they may have heard him saying, crying out, Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani. Oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or they may have heard him saying to uh, John, the, the Apostle John, uh, uh, you know, uh, son, you know, your mother, mother, your son, you know, and, and, you know, things like that. They may have witnessed things like that. But all they would have known is, is that, well, there's some poor guy who's you know, obviously run afoul of the Roman Empire. They're making an example of him. He's obviously an evildoer because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And they probably would have kept on walking, right? Unless, they, of course, they knew who Jesus was. And they, oh, Isn't that the, the – oh, well, I, well, we had had hopes that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, I guess we were wrong. It turns out he's a criminal after all. You see what I'm saying? So they wouldn't have been able to theologically connect any of the dots as to what – what's going on there just in witnessing or walking past the the historical event same with us without a clear word from god telling us 
in Scripture what Jesus was doing on the cross, you and I are left in the dark. There'd be no way for us to to theologically interpret what's going on there. We have no way of getting at it, okay? But thankfully, God has not left us in the dark, and we have in Scripture clear text inspired by God the Holy Spirit, theonoustos. These are God-breathed words that tell us what Jesus was doing on the cross. Now, do you think for a second that Tony Jones is going to go to those to tell us what Jesus was doing on the cross? I wouldn't bet on it. In fact, you're going to be rather disappointed in Tony Jones, and you should be disappointed not only in him, but also Drew Summerall and the folks over at the Harvest Show for allowing him to air this false theology that doesn't have its origin in the Word of God. So without any further ado, here is uh, uh, Drew Summerall and Tony Jones discussing Tony Jones' book, A Better Atonement. Here we go. And we're back with Tony Jones, the author of the the new best-selling ebook <laughs> after uh, today, a better atonement. Uh, so first of all, uh, for folks who maybe okay. I, I just got to stop, a better atonement. I mean, talk about theological hubris. I mean, a better atonement. Like I can I can improve upon what God's word says. Seriously, I mean. Good night. We aren't familiar with that word. I'm sure they're familiar with what we're going to talk about. But just yeah. the word atonement, what does that even mean? Yeah, it's a technical theological term, so we can avoid it for the rest of the interview if you like. Sure. I, I wouldn't mind. But it means what happened when Jesus died on the cross. So yeah. what does that mean for us as far as doctrine? Yeah, so like, you know, when you're a kid, somebody says to you, Jesus died for your sins. And you're like, okay. And you accept that and you accept Jesus into your heart. And at a certain point... Often it happens during like mid-adolescence. You'll be like, uh, how exactly does that work? What do you mean Jesus? Like by what cosmic calculus yes. does the death of Jesus cleanse Equal. me of my sins? Yeah. And that's where theology kicks in. It's like, oh, well, actually, as my book shows, there have been like about a dozen major ideas of how the math works that Jesus dying on a cross cleanses us of our sin. Um, I'd say probably the most uh, popular today in the West in America in evangelical Christianity would be that of, or maybe a menu of, including at the top, what is penal substitution? What is that theory of the atonement? Right, that's another technical term. So it basically boils down to this. God is angry at you because of your sin. Mm-hmm. And God's sense of justice is so all-encompassing that God couldn't possibly allow you into his presence because you're sinful. Mm-hmm. End of story. Until Jesus steps between you two, takes God's wrath, and now God looks at you and all he sees is Jesus. Mm-hmm. And now you can experience eternal life with God. Now, let me play devil's advocate. Somebody's yeah. probably watching going, well, that's exactly the way it is. That's what Paul says in Romans. And that has been the theory of the atonement since the early church, right? Wrong. Good question, but no. Uh, now, before we let him go on, let's take a look at our Bibles, okay? He talks in terms of theories of the atonement. Um, no, um there's biblical passages that explain what was going on when Jesus was hanging on the cross. Let's look at them. Okay. I dare not, 
I dare not speculate here. Okay. So if I'm going to tell you what Jesus was doing on the cross, what, you know, what that was all about, I'm going to say the same thing as scripture says. That's what we're called to do. By the way, the technical term there is confession, and in the Greek it's homologeo. It means to say the same thing as. So I'm going to confess what Scripture says regarding what Christ was doing on the cross. We'll begin with Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, I'll start at verse 1. Here's what the prophet Isaiah prophesying regarding Jesus' crucifixion said about it. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, or by his wounds, we are healed. Okay, now the the Hebrew here uh, for chastisement can also literally be translated punished. Okay, so upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted or credited righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Okay? So we can glean from Isaiah chapter 53 that Jesus, whom this is prophesying about, was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. God crushed him. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is what the text says. How that works? Don't know. I can tell you that this is what the text says. Okay, I'm not called to challenge God's word. I'm not called to disbelieve it, to muddy it, or just cast it aside and say, I don't like this. Instead, I'm called to believe it, teach it, confess it. This passage is God-breathed, right? Now there's more, okay? Let me take you to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, by the way, really takes some time in fleshing this out. And, you know, as it's written to Hebrew Christians... Um, it 
go, it, the book of Hebrews itself takes great pains to explain how the Old Testament sacrificial system was a type and shadow pointing us to the real thing, the real thing being the death of Jesus Christ. So think of, think of the entire Old Testament system of animal sacrifices. That was to point us to Jesus, the one true sacrifice who makes peace between us and the Father through his blood. Okay, Why? Because we need our sins to be forgiven. And this explains certain things theologically for us that we wouldn't know otherwise. I'll start at chapter 8, and I'm going to keep reading for a while, even though this is technical stuff in this chapter, I would recommend reading it yourself as I'm as I'm as I'm reading it for you or take some time afterwards to walk through the passage. Hebrews chapter eight. Here's what it says. Now the point in what we are saying is this we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the very true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who would offer according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more." Now, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is is ready to vanish away. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared for the first section in which there the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, and of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But in the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood." 
which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Now, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, well, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is still alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all of the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all of the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in the worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let me read that again. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, does the Bible say why that is? No, it doesn't. It just says that this is absolutely necessary. We continue, though. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he, Jesus, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. Okay, So you kind of get the idea of what's going on here, that Jesus Christ, his blood shed 
is for the forgiveness of our sins. This is what Scripture clearly says, that he redeems us, that he suffered in our place um, and basically took all of our sins upon himself, and through his blood, we then are saved. Got it? That's what the text says. Let me point you to another passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All of this is from God. Verse 18. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, and God is making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, God, made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Another passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And then I would just simply add to this, Paul's synopsis, summary of the gospel itself. You want to know what the gospel, the good news is? Paul actually summarizes the gospel that he preaches. In fact, um, many good biblical scholars believe that what we have in this passage is one of the very first and earliest Christian creeds or confessions. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 1, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you believed and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture and that he appeared to cephas then to the 12 then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep then he appeared to james and to all the apostles and last of all to one untimely born he appeared also to me got it so it's pretty straightforward and I don't know how it all works, but this I do know, that God, the Father, laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all, that God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might be the righteousness of God. And as Paul points out in Philippians chapter 3, that we we who are in Christ don't have a righteousness of our own that comes through the law, but we are clothed in the righteousness of God, the righteousness that comes by faith, okay? So there's like a double exchange that goes on. Our sins are laid on Christ. He is pierced for our transgressions. He is crucified for our sins and dies. His blood establishes for us the forgiveness of our sins. And it's it's a redemption. It's a penal substitutionary sacrifice that propitiates the wrath of God. This is what all the biblical texts say. Okay? I can't go beyond that because I have nothing that I can hang on to outside of Scripture that's going to shed any better light than what the light that Scripture says. So I then I'm to embrace and teach what Scripture says and teaches. Say the same thing as. 
Now, one of the things I took the time to do is um, on my Letter of Mark blog, I have a new blog post called um, Penal Substitution in the Writings of the Church Fathers. Penal Substitution in the Writings of the Church Fathers. And what I want to read for you are some of these quotes from the earliest Christian church fathers who are teaching the same thing as what the passages I just read for you are. For instance, Justin Martyr, who lived from about 100 A.D. to 165, in his work entitled Dialogue with Trypho, which you can find in the writings of the Antinicene Fathers, in chapter 95 in his Dialogue with Trypho, here's what Justin Martyr says. Okay, he talks about, talks about Christ who took upon himself the curse due to us. Here's what Justin Martyr says. For the whole human race will be found to be under a curse. For it is written in the law of Moses, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all the things that are written in the book of the law, and continue to do them. That's Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. And no one has accurately done all, nor will you venture to deny this. But some more and some less, and others have observed the ordinances enjoined. But... If those who are under this law appear to be under a curse for not having observed all the requirements, how much more shall all the nations appear to be under a curse who practice idolatry, who seduce youths, um, and commit other crimes? If then the Father of all wished his Christ for the whole human family to take upon him the curses of all, knowing that after he had been crucified and was dead, he would raise him up, why do you argue about him who submitted to suffer these things according to the Father's will, as if, as if he were accursed, and do not rather bewail yourselves. For although his Father caused him to suffer these things in behalf of the human family, yet you did not commit the deed as in disobedience to the will of God. For you did not practice piety when you slew the prophets, and not... And let none of you say, if his father wished him to suffer this, in order that by his stripes the human race might be healed, we have done no wrong. If indeed you repent of your sins and recognize him to be the Christ and observe his commandments, then you may assert this. For as I have said before, remission of sins shall be yours, or forgiveness. But if you curse him and and them that believe on him, and when you have the power... And when you have the power, put them to death. How is it possible that requisition shall not be made of you as of unrighteousness, of, of unrighteous and sinful men altogether, hard-hearted without understanding because you laid your hands on him? Okay. Here's Eusebius of Caesarea, who wrote between uh, the 275 and 339 AD. Okay. Here's what he says. So it is said... And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity, he bears our sins. Thus the Lamb of God, that taketh away the sins of the world, became a curse on our behalf. Whom, though he knew no sin, God made sin for our sake, giving him as redemption for all, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Second Corinthians 5.21 And how can he make our sins his own, and be said to bear our iniquities, except by our being regarded as his body, according to the apostle who says, Now ye are the body of Christ, and severally members of it. And by the rule that if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. So when the many members suffer and sin, he too, by the laws of sympathy, takes into himself the labors of the suffering members and makes our sickness his, and suffers all of our woes and labors by the laws of love. And the Lamb of God not only did this, but was chastised on our behalf and suffered a penalty he did not owe, 
but which we owed because of the multitude of our sins. And so he became the cause of the forgiveness of our sins because he received death for us and transferred to himself the scourging and the insults and the dishonor which which were due to us and drew down upon himself the appointed curse being made a curse for us. Hilary of Poitiers um, in, uh, who wrote between 300 and 368 on his homily on Psalm 53 says this, for next there follows, I will sacrifice unto thee freely. The sacrifices of the law, which consisted of whole burnt offerings and oblations of goats and of bulls, did not involve an expression of free will because the sentence of a curse was pronounced on all who broke the law. Whoever failed to sacrifice laid himself open to the curse, and it was always necessary to go through the whole sacrificial action because the addition of a curse to the commandment forbade any trifling with the obligation of offering. It was from this curse that our Lord Jesus Christ redeemed us when, as the Apostle says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law being made curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Thus he offered himself to death of the accursed, that he might break the curse of the law, offering himself voluntarily a victim to God the Father, in order that by means of a, a voluntary victim, the curse which attended the discontinuance of the regular victim might be removed. Athanasius, in his book On the Incarnation, he says this, Thus, taking a body like our own, because of our bodies were liable to the corruption of death, he surrendered his body to death in place of all and offered it to the Father. He did, he did out of sheer love for us, so that, his death, that in his death all might die, and the law of death thereby abolished, because having fulfilled in his body that for which it was appointed, it was thereafter voided of its power for men." Thus he did that he might turn again into, into incorruption men who had turned back to corruption and make them alive through death by the appropriation of his body and by the grace of his resurrection. Thus he would make death to disappear from them utterly as straw from fire. And then later in the same work, here's what he says. The word, that's Jesus, perceived that corruption could not be got rid of otherwise than through death. Yet he himself, as the word being immortal and the father's son, was such as could not die. For this reason, therefore, he, Jesus, assumed a body capable of death in order that it, through, uh, through belonging to the word who is above all, might become in dying a sufficient exchange for all and itself remain incorruptible through his indwelling, might thereafter put an end to corruption for all others as well by the grace of the resurrection. It was by surrendering to death the body which he had taken as an offering and a sacrifice, free from every stain, that he forthwith abolished death for his human brethren, and by the offering of the equivalent. For naturally, since the word of God was above all, when he offered his own temple, and bodily instrument as a substitute for the life of all, he fulfilled in death all that was required. I'll read one more of these. This is from John Christostom on his homilies on Second Corinthians. Christostom writes, he says, If one that was himself a king beholding a robber and malefactor under punishment gave his well-beloved son, his only begotten son and true, to be slain, and transferred the death and the guilt as well from him to his son, who was himself of no such character, that he might both save the condemned man and clear him from his evil reputation, and then if having subsequently promote, uh, 
uh, promoted him to great dignity, he had yet, after thus saving him and advancing him to the glory, unspeakable, been outraged by the person that had received such treatment? Would not that man, if he had any sense, have chosen ten thousand deaths rather than appear guilty of so great ingratitude? This then let us also now consider with ourselves and groan bitterly for the provocations we have offered our benefactor, nor let us therefore presume because through outrage he bears it with long suffering, but rather for this very reason be full of remorse. Now I have other quotes from the church fathers, including Gregory of Nazianzus, Ambrose of Milan, Augustine of Hippo, uh, Gelsius, uh, I can't pronounce this one. Uh, Gelsius of uh, yeah, it's fifth century church father, and then as well as Gregory the Great. Now, there's more that I could put here, but the point is, is that when you read the writings of the church fathers, the church fathers have absolutely no problem whatsoever talking about the fact that Jesus Christ became a curse for us, that he was chastised for us, that he suffered our penalty in our place. The church fathers have no problem discussing this, and the church fathers that I'm quoting from show up really, really early in Christendom. And the point is this, where did these church fathers get these ideas from? Answer, from the written word of God that so clearly tells us what Jesus was doing on the cross. Now, do you think that uh, Tony Jones is going to point us to these church fathers? Do you think Tony Jones is going to point us to these passages and then tell us what these passages say Jesus was doing on the cross? Well, no. He is a postmodern liberal theologian. He's not going to point us to what the Word of God says. He's going to point us elsewhere. Let's listen in. That theory of the atonement is is modern. It's happened only recently because... Really, that's weird because I just quoted you know half a dozen church fathers who all teach it. How is that modern? It, it happened really... It started with a guy named Anselm in the Middle Ages. Just as the... There was no such thing before a thousand before the year a thousand ad as that really that's weird because not only did i quote the bible which you know in the new testament passages which were finished well before 70 ad um but i quoted justin martyr from the early second century eusebius of caesarea late uh third century hilary of poitiers again uh, he's fourth century athanasius fourth century um, yeah, and I could bring others to bear here. Um, that's weird because Tony Jones just emphatically said this didn't exist until a thousand AD. Weird. I mean, I just quoted people that teach penal substitution long before a thousand AD. Listen again. Uh, that theory of the atonement is is modern. It's happened only recently because. It happened really, it started with a guy named Anselm in the Middle Ages, just as the, there was no such thing before a thousand, before the year a thousand AD as that was thought of as like modern legal theory. There was no such thing. People lived in feudal systems with, you know, a lord. Modern legal theory. Okay, let me again go to the quote from Christostom, Okay. Listen to this, okay, modern legal theory. And this was written in the 4th century, okay. 
If one that was himself a king, beholding a robber and a malefactor under punishment, gave his well-beloved son, his only begotten and true, to be slain and transfer the death and the guilt as well from him to his son, who was himself of no such character, that he might both save the condemned man and clear him from his evil reputation. That's, that is fourth century. Okay? How is this possible? I mean, this is a miracle. Before there was any modern legal theory, good night. Before there was any modern legal theory, we have John Christostom discussing Jesus' death in terms of legal theory. And that's out of place because this this idea regarding Christ's death on the cross and the atonement was not supposed to happen until, well, the, the, the thousand A.D., right? Just as the... There was no such thing... Before a thousand, before the year a thousand A.D., as that was thought of as like modern legal theory, there was no such thing. People lived in feudal systems with, you know, a lord lived up on a hill, and all the serfs lived, you know, down the slopes, and they paid homage to their lord, and the lord protected them. Well, interestingly, theories of the atonement before the year one thousand looked a lot more like that, like it's a lord protecting vassals or serfs and protecting those people from the attacks of evil so in those days there was it's weird because i mean what i just read from the ancient church fathers doesn't sound anything like what tony jones is describing weird huh it's a very popular theory of the atonement that said what jesus did on the cross primarily was defeated satan yeah. Defeated the person who's trying to destroy you. And this would be the, the, the Christus Victor. Christus Victor is the Latin yes, term for it, but Christ the Victor mm-hmm. over Satan. Well, now we live in a, the most litigious legal society in history. You and I... So notice here, this is kind of the, the unwritten premise here, and I'll point it out, is that Tony Jones is basically saying that, oh, all of these theologies are based upon cultural understandings. Okay, And so as culture changes and advances, the ideas about what Jesus was doing on the cross change as well. None of the, so in the way, he's, there's no such thing as, as a biblical anchored once for all delivered to the saints doctrine regarding Christ's atonement. No, no, no. Yeah, you just, there's, there's modifications going on as a result of cultural influences. And so you know, basically, uh, theories of the atonement abound because well cultures change and you know that's the kind of thing so it doesn't yeah 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 this penal substitutionary stuff this is just a cultural development has nothing to do with what jesus was really doing on the cross between federal law state law and local ordinances we have you and i each have more laws over us than any other human beings who've ever existed yeah we think legally so no surprise, we have a very legalistic under, understanding of the atonement, and that's where you get things like maybe when you were a kid in youth group, you heard something like, God's a judge, he condemns you to death, and then he takes off the robe and goes to the electric so chair. So, kind, of Je- kind of Jesus the lawyer. So yeah, to speak, right, yeah. becomes a very judicial kind of. Okay, now I want to point this out. This is just a, a really bad sermon illustration that he's shooting down. 
he's not actually touching the biblical text that say that he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. No, no, he's not touching those texts. He's shooting down a sermon illustration. That's not the same thing as dealing with what the clear biblical passages say. The thing like there's a price to be paid. You've, You've done something wrong. You earn a penalty. Someone needs to pay that penalty. But the funny thing about this thing is, like, if that ever happened in an actual courtroom and the judge's like, but I'm going to go to the electric chair for this man I've just condemned to death. Everybody in the courtroom would be like, no, dude, that's not how it works. That's not justice. Like, you don't get to do that. Yeah. And, and the reason it breaks down is because, well, the analogy in our legal system, a judge doesn't have that authority. Change it, though, to something like a kingdom where the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch all lie in the king. And then it starts to make sense. That's right. That's not just. So in the last 30 years, we've seen uh, the emergence, to to use that word, of uh, uh, some new theories, Mm -hmm. one of which has been developed by Rene Girard, who I'm a a very big fan of. Yeah. Um, Was it some of his theories that made you want to Right about the atonement? Yeah, I think his theories are fascinating. So he comes at it and he brings kind of a fresh perspective because he's an anthropologist and not a theologian. So he's, he's so we're going to have a fresh perspective on the atonement from an anthropologist. Again, my question is, what's going to be your source for coming up with Christian doctrine? God's word or man's teachings and ideas and philosophies? And he says, look, throughout primitive human history, people said when bad things happen, it, it's because two people want the same thing and conflict builds up and resentment builds up and violence it, it ends up happening. I mean, in the earlier reports on Israel, we might even look at the whole thing of what continues to happen in the Middle East of all these resentments over the same piece of property. Mm-hmm. And so then violence happens. And Gerard says what people did in primitive religions was, you know, they throw a virgin into a volcano, right? Or they sacrifice an innocent victim. Yeah. And, all the, and all the tension dissipates. Right. Temporarily, right? Right. Until it starts to And this is again. called a scapegoat. A scapegoat theory, right? And so Gerard says, but when Jesus goes to the cross, he shows the bankruptcy of that whole system. Violence does... Really? So what passage in the New Testament or old because Isaiah 53 is from the Old Testament, tells us that Jesus goes to the cross to show us the bankruptcy of the sacrificial system. does not cure anybody of their resentment. It never works. It's a dead end. And by God going to the cross, we look at Jesus on the cross and go, it doesn't work. The last scapegoat, he says. Not because he's the perfect scapegoat, but because he shows the whole system of scapegoating and bloodletting and violence to relieve pressure in society doesn't work. We have Weird, huh? Because who was the one who basically revealed and commanded the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, which has nothing to do with, you know, resolving conflict in society per se? Answer? God himself instituted the Old Testament sacrificial system. So here we've just got this theory. This, we just make up all kinds of theories. You know, you know, I, I like the Elvis theory, okay, that Jesus was actually, because, you know, there's a lot of people who still think that Elvis is still alive. And that really what happened is, is that, that Elvis, he didn't really die. 
Okay, he was beamed up to the mothership that was on the other side of the Hale-Bob comet. And what happened is, is that once he got on board the mothership, you know, Elvis went back in time and, you know, and kind of like, you know, the, the, the quantum leap program, uh, he, he actually exchanged souls with Jesus on the cross. And so Elvis is really the one who died um, on the cross, not Jesus, because Jesus can't die because he's God. So Elvis did it. F- so it's the Elvis theory of the atonement. See, I think it's a great theory, don't you? And you can just spin out all kinds of theories that you that you like, right? And who's to say your theory is any better than my theory? I like the Elvis theory. But see, the thing is, is that that's not Christian doctrine. The question is, what has God revealed in His Word, in the inspired? Theonoustos, God-breathed, word of God, what does it say? And it tells us what Jesus was doing on the cross. God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. It was the will of the Father to crush him. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is what Scripture says. This is not what um, Tony Jones is appealing to. He's literally created a theological house of smoke. Not even cards, because cards have substance, some real substance to them. Now, I know smoke technically, you know, on the atomic level has substance. Otherwise, we wouldn't see it as smoke. But the thing is, is that this is so flimsy that all you have to do is blow on it, and it disappears. It just goes away in a puff of smoke because this is not based on anything biblical. have to find peaceful ways to resolve our conflict. So as a, uh, just a typical Christian at home, as they reflect upon their salvation, how important do you think it is of whatever theory of the atonement or doctrine that they cling to? How important is that to their salvation? So if you believe in this new, uh, you know, theory based upon the ideas of an anthropologist, um, Jesus is the last scapegoat. I mean, are you still saved? You don't believe Jesus died for your sins, do you? No, you don't. You don't believe that he was pierced for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities. You believe in a, basically a false Jesus and a false gospel. Okay? If you believe in the Elvis theory of the atonement, are you saved? No, you're not at all. Well, I, there's, a two, there's a two-sided answer to that question. The first side is not that important. If you embrace that Jesus' death on the cross had cosmic significance, that you can identify with that. In, in fact, since the early church, people have said this is a primarily important doctrine, but it's not a doctrine that gets you in or out of heaven. Your understanding of Jesus' death on the cross or the atonement, mm-hmm. that's not what does it for you. So it's not that important. So apparently, I mean... You can believe that Jesus was doing anything. You, you, you come up with the, you know, the hopscotch uh, theory of the atonement. Yeah, it doesn't take your money, take your pick. It doesn't matter if you get it right or not. I would argue that it absolutely get it is absolutely required. Here's the reason why. Okay, let me give you a biblical argument. Galatians chapter one. Okay, Paul writing to the church in Galatia says this. I am astonished, this is verse 6, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, a different good news. Not that there is another, 
But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that is contrary to the one that we preached, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed, anathema, damned, okay? So Paul here makes the gospel itself, the substance of the gospel message itself, a non-negotiable for Christians, okay? So this has nothing to do with church councils. This has everything to do with what Scripture clearly says. According to God the Holy Spirit, if you believe a different gospel, then you are damned. This is what Scripture says. So what is the gospel that Paul preached? I just read it to you earlier. Let me read it again. 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. In other words, it is a central, core, non-negotiable tenet of biblical doctrine and the gospel itself that Christ died for our sins. If you don't believe that because you've masked it with a different atonement theory, well, according to first uh, to Galatians chapter 1, you're damned. That's not my opinion. That's what the scripture says. It's an all or nothing. Either you truly believe and trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sins because he was pierced for your transgressions. He was he was crucified for your sins. You either believe that, that's the biblical gospel, or you believe a false gospel. And it's so core and so central and so you know it what Christianity is all about. That if you don't understand that Jesus died for your sins and you don't believe that, then according to the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you're damned. It's not my argument. That's the Bible's argument. And back it up. Listen again. In, in fact, since the early church, people have said this is a primarily important doctrine, but it's not a doctrine that gets you in or out of heaven. Your understanding of Jesus' death on the cross or the atonement, Mm -hmm. that's not what does it for you. So it's not that important to get it right. In fact, there was no early church council that decided on one doctrine of the atonement like they did with the Trinity or the divinity of Christ or what books make the Bible. It maybe wasn't quite as central as we think it is now. Right. Now, Now, the reason why this is a fallacious argument is real simple. Okay. Church councils that put down heresies were called specifically because there were heresies that were teaching contrary. For instance, one of the reasons why the Council of Nicaea had to deal with the doctrine of the Trinity is because of the Arian heresy. Okay? What he's pointing to here, basically the, the, the argument's simple, that you don't have people within the visible church challenging and coming up with an alternate understanding of what Jesus was doing on the cross, okay? As a result of it, there wasn't a heresy that had to be put down. It was, for the most part, even heretics understood the clear text that Jesus died for our sins, and they understood that uh, to, to basically mean what it said. Does that make sense? So this is not a good argument, 
because church councils are convened to put down heresies, not just to just affirm um, you know, basic core tenets of Christianity. Does that make sense? You know, the, the reason why church councils have to address heresies and deal with them is because a heresy has arisen. So this is not a good argument. But clearly wasn't. That's yeah. right. The other side of that coin, though, is I say, it's incredibly important. Yeah. It's, the, it's the single most important event. If you're a Christian, it's the single most important event. It is the event. In all of cosmic history. Yeah. So look at it, meditate on it. And I think if nothing else, look at Jesus hanging on the cross and go and think to myself, think to yourself, as Paul sings in Philippians 2, that God became human being. And that God experienced ultimate solidarity with us as human beings, with our sense of loss, our sense of loneliness. What? Paul doesn't say that in Philippians 2. What is this? This is postmodern liberal gobbledygook. Listen again. That God became human being. And that God experienced ultimate solidarity with us as human beings, with our sense of loss, our sense of loneliness. And on the cross, even on the cross, Jesus yells out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes. So Jesus is on the cross experiencing solidarity with our loneliness. That's not the gospel. That's a different gospel. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. No, that's ridiculously vapid. Well, again, the uh, the book is, if you want to learn a little more, it is a better atonement by... Uh... Yeah, that's not a better atonement. That's like not even an atonement. It's like worse. The professor, the great, the doctor, Tony <laughs> Jones. If you'd like to connect with Tony, you can go to TonyJ.net, or as we mentioned before. Uh, done. Man, was that horrible. Yeah, so again, my question, why is this on a mainstream evangelical television program? That was a false gospel, false view of the atonement, not based on scripture, but just literally based on nothing but the ideas of men. Unbelievable. All right, we're going to take our first break. We come back, we're going to uh, listen to Jonathan Welton wax eloquent regarding the passage that forbids women for uh, speaking in church. Very duplicitous. Don't want to miss that. It'll be a short segment, then we'll do a second break, and then our sermon review. So things are a little off in the timing. Stay tuned. We'll get it all worked out here in a few minutes. You don't want to miss it all. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. 
Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slapshots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe! He's safe! That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. Missouri. <laughs> the spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner, and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, 
A portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. If you start tinkering with atonement theories, you run the risk of believing in a false gospel. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, it's a great way to... Support us, by the way, if you're not already a, a crew member. Uh, when you join our crew, what you're doing is signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, it's it's a great way to support us because the more people that join our crew, that's money that we can count on month after month so we can pay our bills, properly budget, and manage our growth. And, of course, it takes out the peaks and the valleys. It's the valleys that we worry about financially so that uh, we can – uh, continue unabated in our, our mission to bring you sound biblical doctrine and biblical discernment. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Moving along. All right, this is this gentleman's first appearance here at Fighting for the Faith, and you'll notice I'm playing the Patricia King Gang update music, and that's because Jonathan Welton, who we will be reviewing a small snippet from a sermon entitled Seven Shifts Coming to the Church, well, he's um, in the same stripe of person and theology as Patricia King, as you're about to find out. But what we're going to be dealing with here, Jonathan Welton apparently has this Welton Academy thing that he does. And, you know, he's supposedly an academic, um, charismatic, biblical teacher. The problem is, is that uh, what he puts forward uh, for arguments, especially in looking at the passage from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 pertaining to uh, not having women speak in church, he's come up with probably what I would consider one of the most fallacious arguments I've ever heard on its face. Uh, But you're going to have to experience it for yourself. So without any further ado, here's uh, the first time we've reviewed this guy, but probably not the last. Here's Jonathan Welton discussing the seven shifts coming to the church. Shift number one, we need to have women pastors. No joke. Here's Jonathan Welton. All right. First Corinthians 14. We're going to read verse 34 and 35. I always wanted to start a meeting with these verses. They're just so unpleasant. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak. Ooh, there we go. Ding. Notice they're laughing at the word of God. But they must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Yay. 
Okay, I love the Bible. I'm not making fun of the Bible, but I am here going to deal with an issue. This is one of the seven that I believe the Lord is really strongly focused on in the body right now. Yeah, the Lord apparently wants this people to stop forbidding women from being pastors. That's his argument. And this has to change, and it will change, and it is changing currently. One of the issues for the charismatic church that we're all a part of is that we've accepted women in ministry. Fantastic. Good job. But then you get a conservative brother or sister who says, well, what about this verse? I don't know what's happening now. It's more than just that verse, Jonathan. (laughs) We just start blinking it on and off. Yeah, now watch what he's going to do here, by the way. This is just not only a nasty hermeneutic. Um, it's, it's absolutely duplicitous and deceitful. This is what you're going to hear is Jonathan literally creating whole cloth, a fallacious argument designed to basically make this passage say the exact opposite of what it says. And he's going to make an appeal to the Greek. But like I said, a first year, first week Koine Greek student. So if you've attended a Bible college, and, or if you're attend, going to attend a Bible college and they teach you Greek, you will learn the fallaciousness of this argument the first week, maybe even the first day of your Greek class. We continue. Have a good time in here. All right. So we get this, this, this other brother and sister, and they bring a valid question to the table. What do you do with this verse? Yeah, what do you do with it? Wait till we hear what we do with it. And your typical charismatic goes, well, I I, I, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know what to do with that verse. This is a problem because we we have both the truth, we're on the right side, and we have the fruit. We have people like Heidi Baker who are getting a million Mozambican... Heidi Baker, huh? ...saved in the last 10 years through their through her and her husband's ministry and you have people like the mother teresa or patricia king or uh, patricia king this guy thinks patricia king is a valid ministrix uh, in in the church what does that tell you or just uh just tremendous women uh of god that are doing tremendous things yeah because patricia king is a tremendous woman of god so we have the fruit and the truth is on- no you have rotten fruit there dude on our side but we don't know how to explain and understand. And we look at this and go, I, I just don't know. Was it Paul? Is it Paul that has a problem? And we have these issues and we have to get past this. I'm not saying we have to get past the word. We have to get past our ignorance. Oh, so you're going to enlighten us. Got it. We cannot continue to allow ourselves to have no answers for this. We have to get some answers. Now, I'm going to give you an answer for this one, but it's not the only passage. There's three main passages in the New Testament. Uh, in First, uh, uh, First Peter 3 is one of the other ones. I, I may get into this more later, so I'm just going to breeze over right now. But First Corinthians 14, 34 through 35. Here's the issue at hand. If you look at this in context... Paul just said three chapters earlier, women can prophesy in church as long as their head is covered. Okay, that's actually not what Paul said. 
Notice what he said. He said that Paul just said in chapter 11 that women can prophesy in church as long as their head is covered. Now, this is a subtle argument, but you have to pay attention to the details of the context so that you know what is going on. So if you have your Bible, flip on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to start at verse 2, and I'm going to show you something here that you have to catch from the overall context, and this is why good Bible commentaries and good biblical scholarship is helpful. Okay, First uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Here's what it says. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair uh, short, but since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Okay, now... I'm going to point this out. This is not talking about praying or prophesying in church. Okay? How do I know this? Verse 17. I've consulted several different very good New Testament commentaries on this. And verse 17 is where Paul makes the shift to talking about what takes place in the church. Here's what he says. Uh, 11 verse 17 but in the following instructions i do not commend you because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse okay in other words just, just, when you come together are the key is the key phrase there that verse marks a change in what paul is talking about now women okay they can pray women have even the gift of prophecy. But verse this passage here in verse 11, chapter 11, is not talking about prophesying or praying publicly in the church. Where do women then pray and prophesy? At home, in the marketplace, with their friends. Women can actually teach other people the Bible, just not in authority over a man in the church. Okay? And the idea here is, is this goes back to just sound biblical hermeneutics. Clear passages always govern unclear. And when we see an unclear passage like this, okay, so it's talking about women, you know, prophesying. Is that in church? Answer, no. How do we know the clear passages forbid this? Okay. And there's a marked change in the content of what Paul is talking about in in verse 17 of chapter 11, where he changes the subject and now addresses the Corinthians about the things they're doing wrong when they come together as the church, okay? So what, what, already Jonathan is off to a bad start here because he's basically trying to find a way to get rid of this clear passage that women should not speak in the church. Paul doesn't contradict himself. And the reason we know this is because the passage says women should be quiet in the church, says they should be quiet in the church, but whereas prophesying and praying, women can do that in many places, just not in the church, and that's why verse 17 changes the subject to start talk about the abuses of the things that they're doing wrong when they come together as church. We continue. You remember that? So, as long 
as she's got the doily on her head, she can speak for God. Not in church. She cannot prophesy in church. But it's disgraceful or it is a shame for her to speak in church. She can't speak for herself, but she can speak as an oracle of God. Do you see a problem? There's like some real conflict there. Yeah, the problem is bad hermeneutics on your part. You know, I, if, if I don't want someone to talk to me at all, I definitely don't want them to speak as the voice of God in my church. There's a problem there. What we don't see in our modern translation of what we're reading... Now listen carefully. It's the Bible, but it's a translation. You're not reading the Greek. You're not reading the Hebrew. You're reading the English. You bought an English Bible. What you don't see is quotations. What you don't see is quotations. Now, literally, what you're about to hear him argue is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that in the Greek text, there's quotation marks around uh, women should be silent in the church. That's what he's going to argue, okay? And I'll let him make his argument, but this is absolutely fallacious. In Koine Greek, there are no quotation marks at all. There is no such uh, grammatical points in the Koine Greek, but listen in. One of the things that's going on here is this is called 1 Corinthians, but it's really technically 2 Corinthians. Oh, Walter's getting it. He's ahead of me. Really? Okay. So we're missing 1 Corinthians, apparently. It's called 2 Corinthians because it's a response letter. Paul's writing back to them. That's why he says in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now concerning to the things that you wrote to me about... He's responding to them. Okay, notice, I want to point something out here. Again, it's a subtle argument, and I'm not trying to nitpick, but his point was, in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, okay, his, he's basically trying to argue that 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says that the Corinthian church wrote Paul a letter, and this is his response. Okay, that's a fallacious argument in this sense. This is this is still 1 Corinthians, even though Paul is answering questions that they had in a letter that they wrote to him. Does that make sense? If, it, if this was really 2 Corinthians, then 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians, and we're missing 1 Corinthians. No, the, the, the church at Corinth wrote a, some questions to Paul, and he needed to answer them, and he's answering them. So this is not... Second Corinthians that we're reading, but this is his argument. But watch what he does here. This is how he's trying to set it up. So all throughout First Corinthians, in the Greek, there's this grave accent, this little symbol that means what I'm about to say is a quote from your letter. Okay, that. Okay, there's. Let me put it this way. There is only a couple of options here. Okay, one, he doesn't know Greek. And he's got bum information. Two, he's invented his own argument. Let me back it up so that you can hear it again. He's basically arguing that in the Koine Greek, there is a, quote, grave accent, which somehow signifies 
um, you know, the beginning of a quotation mark. That is patently false. There isn't a single person who really knows Greek who would ever say such a thing. And like I said, this is so basic that a first-year, first-week Greek student would know the fallaciousness of the statement. Listen again. Throughout 1 Corinthians, in the Greek, there's this grave accent, this little symbol that means what I'm about to say is a quote from your letter. Okay, flat-out lie. Okay, let me read to you from the basics of biblical Greek. This is the textbook when I've taught Greek, I, uh, I use to teach students from. Um, Mounts's, uh, from his basics of biblical Greek, the accents. Here we go, accents. Almost every Greek word has an accent mark. It is placed over a vowel and shows which syllable receives the stress. Originally, the accent was a pitch accent. The voice rose, dropped, or rose and dropped on the accented syllable. Eventually, it became a stress accent as we have in English. Most teachers are satisfied with students simply placing stress on the accented syllable. The acute accent shows that the pitch originally went up a little on the accented syllable. The grave or grave accent shows that the voice originally dropped a little on the accented syllable. The circumflex accent shows that the voice rose and then dropped a little on the accented syllable. In other words, there are three accents in Greek, the acute, the grave, and the circumflex. That's what they're used for is basically you know, putting stress on a particular syllable. And originally the acute was a pitch up. The grava pitched down, the circumflex you know, had the voice rise and then drop over the accented syllable. That's it. Never in Koine Greek was a grav accent used to show quotation marks. In fact, there are no quotation marks in Koine Greek. What this guy is saying is flat out bogus information. We continue. And you find it throughout 1 Corinthians. And it's right here, verse 34 and 35. That's not the Bible, guys. Verse 34 and 35 is not the Bible. It's in the Bible, but it's not God speaking. It's their letter being quoted as he's responding to them. Again, this is breathtakingly deceitful. Absolutely patently false. And how do we know this? Okay. Simple hermeneutical principle. Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, let me read to you the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 33, 34, and 35. Here's what it says. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak and should be it should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay? That's what the text says. This is not a quote from the letter sent uh, by the, uh, the, you know, the Corinthians to Paul. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Said Now, how do we know that this is really what Paul was getting at? Answer, because Paul says the same thing. He writes it to Timothy, okay? 
you have your Bible, flip on over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Here's what it says. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. In other words, using a simple biblical concept, Scripture interprets Scripture. We know that 1 Corinthians 14 is a cross-reference to 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11 and 12 and 13. Straight up, super simple. And Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 14 is that this is according to the law. And in 1 Timothy, Paul points that not only to the law but also to creation itself, the governing passage being Genesis chapters, uh, chapter 2. That's what the governing passage is. So, that being the case, we see that both passages are consistent. There's no such thing as a grave accent used to highlight quotation marks. There was, there was no such uh, device used in the Koine Greek at all. And what uh, what this guy is basically trying to do is find a clever way to make it so that we don't have to obey what's written in this text. And he's basically arguing, oh, well, that's what the Corinthians wrote to the Apostle Paul. He put quotation marks around it, and he didn't mean for that to actually be a command. No, 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 no. He meant the opposite. Not so. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11, 12, and 13 proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Paul, this was exactly what God the Holy Spirit wanted. Women are not to exercise authority over a man. This is why also in 1 Timothy, when it comes to the qualifications for a teacher, for a pastor in the church, husband of one wife, husband, they're men. That's what God the Holy Spirit wants. That's what he's commanded. And what this guy is doing is engaging in absolute deceit in order to overturn the clear passage. Let's put it in context. In chapter 14, he spends all this time talking about let, let each other prophesy. Let two or three and then you're going to judge. This is how you're going to have a good worship service where everybody gets to be involved. You know, good old John Wimber service. Everybody gets to play. He's, he's saying, this is how you're going to do it. And then he gets to a certain point and he says, you know, the spirits are subject to the, to the spirit of the prophet, the Holy Spirit, the, excuse me, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets. It's verse 32. Verse 33, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Okay, so God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. He just spent the whole chapter laying out an orderly, peaceful, good flow to a normal, super charismatic, early church meeting. That's how it's going to go. Normal Christianity. So, then he gets to this point and he quotes them. Here's them speaking. No, he's not quoting them at all. This is a lie. Women should remain silent in churches. 
They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Notice he left out the tail end of verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Paul's argument is that this is a practice in all of the churches. And as we learned from 1 Timothy 2, why? Because it goes back to the order of creation. Okay, So notice, he omitted, as in all the churches of the saints, because when you put that in there, it's clear. There's no, first of all, the Grav accent is not uh, you know, you know, quotation mark at all. Second, when you put, as in all the churches of the saints, it's clear that this has nothing to do with something the Corinthians were originally writing to Paul, so he's quoting them, and then he's going to correct it. This is absolutely duplicitous. Here's his response. Did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks that they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Okay, he just added a word. Okay, he added the word sisters. That does not appear anywhere in verse 39. Let me read it to you. Starting verse uh, 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. That would be that women should be silent. That's the command. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. He added, Jonathan Welton just added the word sisters. It is not there. The Greek says, hosta adelphoi mu, therefore my brothers. It does not say sisters. He added it. Let me back it up so you can hear it. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. Everything should be done in a fittingly and orderly way. He, again, he added the word sisters. It's not there in the Greek. You see that? Yeah, I saw it. And that's exactly how the devil twists God's word. And that's exactly what you just heard there. A flat out twisting of God's word. God's word is clear. Okay. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. That's what the scripture says. It's cross-reference with 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11, 12, and 13. There's no way around it. The clear passage is governed. And that is one of the most deceitful and clever twistings of scripture that I have ever heard in order to make this passage say the exact opposite of what it says. That's not what a sound biblical exegete or a Christian does. That's the type of twisting that comes, well, from the devil. 
All right. We are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We get back a Kelly Dykstra sermon from the Crossing Church up in Elk River, Minnesota. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. (laughs) The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double barrel nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. We're well into hour number two here at Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. I thought it apropos to review a Kelly Dykstra sermon after reviewing the biblical teaching regarding the fact that women are not to be an authority over a man and teach in the church. This is what God has revealed. No point in arguing with it. But I digress. Here we go. 
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Crossing Church, Elk River, Minnesota, Pastrix, Kelly Dykstra presiding. That's right. She is presented as a pastor at the Crossing Church, which is directly forbidden by God's Word. But she'll be preaching on something about, well, the year of faith is the sermon series, and she'll be preaching from 1 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Kings chapter 18, the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And as you will see, not only is Kelly forbidden by Scripture to be doing what she's doing as she starts to unfold and tries to exegete this passage, she will show and demonstrate that she has no skill whatsoever at exegeting the scripture, which is no surprise. So let me go ahead and kill the music, and without any further ado, here is Pastrix Kelly Dykstra, The Year of Faith. This is week four in the sermon series. Here we go. So this is the last week in our series, Year of Faith, and Pastor Eric has been teaching about an atmosphere of faith and what that looks like and what that feels uh, What? An atmosphere of faith. What is it with the seeker-driven and the word of faith people having, and, and also the, uh, you know, the, the, you know, charismatic new apostolic reference, what is all this atmosphere stuff? When all of a sudden do we, we come to the point where we're creating atmospheres? I don't even know what that means. Like and how that goes based on the truth of scripture. And so for the last few weeks, we've been talking about asking from God in faith, asking. You don't get what you don't ask for, right? Okay, so I really hope you'll talk back to me because that would be really cool. Because then when my mom watches this online, she'll be like, oh, there are people in there. She's not just pretending. Thank you. That's better. Okay. So he spoke the first week about ask. And then second, to speak, to speak truth and speak in faith. And that's why we say those six statements each week. We're speaking the truth that God speaks over our lives. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we speak faith. And then last week we talked about giving and that when we plant a seed, God grows it. We talked about giving in faith. And this week I get to talk about expecting God to show up and do something amazing. And I'm super excited about that. When I was thinking about... So when you plant a seed, God grows it. Talking about money. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's part of the word of faith heresy. It's taken root there at the Elk River campus of the Crossing Church. What story, I like to preach from stories in scripture, and uh, I was thinking, what story do I like that has somebody expecting God to show up and do something great, and then God comes through? And the one that I, I immediately thought of was in 1 Kings chapter 18, the story of Elijah and the sacrifice showdown. So Elijah was expecting God to do great things, and he showed up. Oh, my. What a miserable angle on this text. Elijah and the sacrifice showdown. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to invite you to grab your Bible and turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. If you're using the blue Bibles that were on your seats when you came in, that's page 213. I'm going to give a quick shout out to Big Lake and Zimmerman. Hey, what's up, y'all? Yeah, woo! We're glad that you've joined us as well. And then, of course... 
TV. Hi, everybody. And so um, I'm going to pray and we're going to jump right in. And we're just going to work our way through a story tonight about expecting God to show up and do something awesome. You guys with me for that? Cool. All right, let's pray and we'll do it. Jesus, thank you so much that already tonight I've just felt your spirit in a very powerful way. Thank you that. I just felt your spirit in a powerful way. Oh, my. Uh, subjective emotional manipulation. Well, you can't challenge anything she said there because God, the Holy Spirit, has already showed up and she felt him in a powerful way. This means that everything she's going to say is true, right? Say you inhabit the praises of your people. And as your people have praised you for the last little while, we've just opened up our mouths and made a joyful noise and worship in honor of you. We know that you are here and that you are present And so we just ask your presence to just continue and to be made very real and tangible to us tonight. I ask that you will show up and you will speak to us, that you will move our hearts to be able to trust you and to know that you have good things planned for us and that we will have the faith to expect it. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen. Okay, so here's the gist of the sacrifice showdown. Elijah was a prophet in Israel, okay, and... At that time, people of Israel were worshiping a false god called Baal. And so one day, somehow through a chain of events, which we won't go into, Elijah has an opportunity to meet up with these other prophets, these prophets of Baal, and they decide to have a sacrifice showdown. The general gist was, Elijah says, hey guys, this is what you can do. You set up an altar for Baal. And you make a sacrifice on it. And I'll set up an altar for my God, who I believe is the true God. And I'm going to set up a sacrifice on it. And then we'll call our gods to rain down fire from heaven and accept our sacrifice. And whoever's God does it wins. Does that sound good? And they were like, yeah, that sounds good. It seems reasonable, right? That's a good way to test and see which God is the right God. Right? Okay. So this is what they do. And incidentally, it was like 450 to one here. So Elijah's like, I'm going to do this. And they're all like, okay. And so this is what he says. He says, you guys go first. So we are in first Kings 18 and we're going to start with verse 26. So they, meaning the bad guys, they, well, I mean, you know, we think they're. Yeah. What she has totally failed to mention regarding the context of the sacrifice showdown is that there's a drought now in Israel as a result of the fact that it hasn't rained for years because God has basically is judging Baal and the false gods. They don't even exist. And those who believe in them, basically Baal is the the Lord of the sky. He's the one who brings the rain. But no, Elijah said it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. And then he disappears off the scene and skedaddles out of uh, Israel. Okay, And so there's a huge drought going on. This judgment has been going on for a long time. That's all part of this story, but she's left that out. But anyway, so they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Okay, pause. Yes, I know. Sacrificing a bull is disgusting, but that's what they did back then. So it was completely normal. So just shake off how gross that is. Okay. All right. Um, They prepared one of the bulls and they placed it on their altar. Then they, these prophets of Baal, called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us! But there was no reply of any kind. So then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. Around noontime, I love this part, Elijah began mocking them. I mean, come on, he made a legitimate, you know, showdown, but then he decides to mock them. 
You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he's a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming or he's relieving himself. (laughs) Did you know that's in the Bible? Maybe he's in the potty. Can you imagine? Or maybe he's away on a trip or he's asleep and he needs to be wakened. Oh, you know, so they're like, you're right. We'll have to shout louder. So they shouted louder and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out trying to get their God's attention. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no and no and no The first thing I want to tell you about expectations is do not expect fire from a false God. Don't expect fire from a false God. (laughs) So this (laughs) Oh man, this is bad. So let me tell you the first thing about expectations. It's really not a good idea (laughs) to expect fire from a false God. Oh, that is bad. I I can't even respond to it. We continue. In this story, asking fire to come down from heaven, from God, was like asking the favor of God to come down and accept the sacrifice and say, okay, I validate you. And fire is power. So it's asking this God to send down. No, it's not that the fire fell to validate Elijah. The fire fell to validate Yahweh. This was a showdown to see which God was the real God. Okay. Elijah didn't need validation. It was, this was Yahweh revealing himself and saying, I'm the real God. That, the ball doesn't even exist. (sighs) The fire of favor and the fire of power down on this sacrifice. Fire of favor. Where are you getting this fire of favor stuff? Huh? And I will tell you, do not expect fire of favor and power on your life from a false God. Now, you know, false gods can take different forms, right? Because it's generally anything that we're looking to besides the real God to fill our lives with favor or to fill us with power or as Spoons and Chopsticks sang earlier, to fill that God-shaped hole that is in us. A false God can be something good. I mean, it can be something that God has given us, like like our spouse or our job or our children. And then we keep putting these expectations on the spouse or the job or the children to fulfill some kind of purpose in our life, to fulfill us, to give us favor, to give us power. And then we're always disappointed because we are placing our expectations on a false God. So often, you know, we look for things from God. We ask for God to give us gifts, and then we focus our attention on the gift rather than the giver. And sometimes they're good things, but they become a false God. They become a God when we have expectations of them rather than expectations of God. And, you know, it's just not even fair. Like when I make my husband a false God and place all kinds of expectations on him, poor guy, he's like, I don't even know what you're expecting. I mean, half the time we have. I don't even know what you're talking about. So whatever you do, women, don't put any expectations on your husbands because that's turning them into a false god. And then the fire of favor can't fall on your life because, you know, you can't expect um, fire of favor to fall from a false god. (sighs) Marriage problems, it's because I'm expecting something he doesn't even know about. Anybody ever been there? 
He's like, I want to try. I'm like, and he's like, it's because we put expectations on people who will fail us. And it's not because they want to. Sometimes they just don't know. Sometimes people put their expectations on the church to fulfill their spiritual needs when it's God who fulfills your spiritual needs. And over the years, we've watched people walk away because they're disappointed in, in Pastor Eric and I or the church because their expectations have been on a false God in their life instead of just on God. Don't expect fire from a false God. I can tell you this. You will always be satisfied when you expect little of people and much of God. Expect little of people You'll get it. <laughs> yeah, don't expect a lot, like, from Kelly Dykstra or Eric Dykstra. Like, you know, sound biblical teaching, them actually following what Scripture says regarding women not being pastors. You know, it's best if you just expect those big things from God and not from Kelly and Eric Dykstra because they're false gods. <laughs> you just can't make this up. Expect much of God. You'll get it. Don't expect fire from a false god. Okay, back to the sacrifice. Thank you, Chris. All right. Where are we? Verse 30. Okay, so they gave up. That was it. They're, oh, you know what? You can take that back down for just a second. I want to say something. I want to ask you something. Is that your experience in life, the whole false god thing? Because... These guys, they're dancing around their altar and they're yelling and screaming and trying to make it work. Have you ever felt like you just yelled and you screamed and you tried and you just worked so hard, even to the extent of harming yourself? And when it was all said and done, you were just laying on the ground, broken and bleeding and disappointed because you were expecting something from a false God. Today, I want you to think, what is it? that you are looking to and you're placing your expectations on. Is it a person? Is it a thing? Are you thinking, if I just get, okay, this is the season. If I just get that tax return, I'm going to be fine. Anybody ever think that? Oh, the tax return, tax return, tax return. I'm just check the mail, get the tax return, tax return. Check my bank account, see if it was, have you ever hoped? So apparently your tax return is a false God. Who knew? In a tax return. I know I have. Do you know that's a false God? You can pray to God and ask him to please help you get a tax return. I've done that. But are we actually hoping in the tax return? Because that is so limited. That is a false God. Are you hoping for the raise? Are you hoping for the meds to solve the problem? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with meds, but are you hoping in that? Or are you hoping that God will just use different things in your life? We've got to make sure that we are always putting our expectations on God and not false gods. God will use different things in our life to meet our needs. And that's awesome. But don't start hoping in those things because he might very well just make it not happen so that you'll redirect your expectations to him because he's a good dad who wants to bless you. Okay, now we'll go back to the sacrifice showdown. Okay. One of these minutes I'm going to say showcase showdown and you can laugh at me. But um, so this is what happens next. Those guys are done. Elijah's like, now it's my turn. So he called to the people, come over here. And they crowded around him as he rebuilt the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. 
So I think that they were in this place of worship or a place to do sacrifices. There must have been a broken down altar there. And he's like, okay, now you come over here and we're going to watch what my God is going to do. And here's the next thing about expectations that I want to tell you. When you believe that God is fixing to do something amazing, call a crowd. (laughs) This is absurd. When you're thinking that God's going to do something amazing, call a crowd. That's the lesson from the story of Elijah. You have got to be kidding me. This is horrible. Oh, my. Call a crowd. He was like, all right, you guys did your thing. Now, I want you to see what my God is going to do. He's fixing to show off. And so he said, come on, come on, gather around. We're going to see something cool. So I want to tell you this. When you're expecting God to show up and show off, when you have expectations that the fire of God is going to fall in a powerful way in your life, call some people around to be a part. And how would I have expectations that the the fire of favor and God is going to fall in my life. So I got to call a crowd. I mean, do I feel goosebumps? You know, how would I know that this is going to happen? Cause the story of Elijah is not normative in this sense. This is ridiculous and utterly clueless. Number one, call your believing friends. Or two or three are gathered, God is there. He says, if two of you agree on something in earth, it will be agreed on in heaven. Call your believing friends to help speak faith to you and to build you up because you don't want to do faith solo. You want somebody who's going to speak faith and they're going to speak those words and they're going to encourage you to keep on asking. Keep on asking. I just talked to a lady after this first service who was talking about how she knew she couldn't have kids and she was wanting to adopt. And it was a process of a couple of years. And she's like, I just, I was like, why is it? Why God? And it was keep on asking. Just keep on asking. Just keep on asking. And eventually God came through for her. Call a crowd, call a crowd of your believing friends to help build your faith and to encourage you to keep on asking and to keep on expecting God to do something good. But then secondly, call your unbelieving friends around. Why not? Be honest with your friends about the crap in your life. Because they're like, oh, now that you became a Christian, everything's so happy, happy, happy. You're like, Jesus, Jesus, you know. But sometimes your life really isn't like that. And you're like, oh, I don't want to give them the, the idea. Kelly, you are aware of the fact that the unbelieving friends that had gathered around the altar of Elijah that he had rebuilt there, that after the fire fell, that a lot of them um, were executed. They were killed that day in judgment. So should we do that too when the fire of favor falls in our lives and we gather our unbelieving friends around us? Yeah, that when you follow Jesus, things still suck. You know what? Sometimes they do. So just call your unbelieving friends around you, you know, make a big party of it. Guess what? I have no job. But I believe that my God is good and I'm expecting good things. So I'm praying for this. And you know what? When God shows up for me, you're going to see that he's a good God. And maybe you'll think about following him too. I mean, they can't argue with your story. Yeah, they can. They actually can. A lot of people out there get jobs without it being a miracle. See, the thing is, is that Christians are not called to tell their story. They're called to tell the story of Christ. The thing they're supposed to be, you know, 
taking issue with is whether or not Jesus Christ rose bodily from the grave. Your story is not the gospel. Whatever happens in your life, that's not the measure as to whether or not Christianity is true or not. There are a ton of people who experience life change in Mormonism, in self-help programs, in Islam, in Alcoholics Anonymous, in in whatever uh, a variety of different ways, if the infomercials of uh, of Anthony Robbins, they've experienced life change and things have gotten better for them in their lives. And you don't have to say that God's the one who brought that all about. Do you understand what I'm saying? That your life change is no measure as to whether or not Christianity is true or not. So, yeah, actually, you can argue against that. They can't argue with that. Well, I don't believe in the Bible, but do you believe what you saw God do in my life? No. Again, the, the, what the, the apostles pointed people to, fulfilled prophecy, and the eyewitness testimony that Jesus Christ rose from the grave on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. They did not argue their own life change. But my story, it's, it's my story. What are you, you're not argue? I don't believe you. Well, then they're just idiots. So they're like, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, I mean, what we'll edit that for television. But you've got a story, and this is the thing. God gives you a story to bring himself glory. God gives you a story to bring him glory. We're on this earth to bring glory to our creator. And he wires us all special, each of us, with our unique wiring and our talents and skills and our, our storyline. And sometimes it's not so good and sometimes it's really good. But God gives us a story to bring him glory. And the best stories, the best movies, the best books are when it seems like all is lost. And then the hero comes and saves the day. And that's what we expect God to be in our life. So when you're expecting God to show up for something. Yeah, and that's exactly what Jesus did. You remember he was crucified? Every, it, I mean, the disciples were in utter despair. He was dead. And on the third day, like miraculously, he rose from the grave. We were dead in trespasses and sins and Christ makes us alive in Christ. Or, you know, or how does Paul put it? You know, that, you know, one might scarcely die for a good person, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That'd be you and me. <sighs> Man. Gather a crowd so that God can get the glory because that's what we're here for. All right, so here's what happens next. I just want to make sure I didn't miss anything. Okay, good. All right. So, verse 31, he took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. So, what Elijah is doing right here is he is building his expectations on the promises of God. Only build your expectations on what... Oh, this is awful. (laughs) I just want to crack up. So Elijah was building his expectations on the promises of God. Kelly, you are, number one, you shouldn't be preaching. You're a woman. Number two, you are clearly not qualified to be preaching under any circumstance. You don't know what you're doing. God has promised. Only build your expectations 
on what God has promised. See, Elijah uses one stone for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's like he is identifying with who his family is. The people of Israel are the descendants of Abraham. Abraham's the one that God called. He's like, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. All the people of earth will be blessed through you. I will prosper you and I will meet your needs and I will make you have many descendants and the whole, you know, all those blessings that we talk about. You know, we're adopted into that family because of Jesus, right? So we are children of that promise too, which is the coolest thing ever. Well, I mean, it's one of the coolest things ever. No, it's probably the coolest thing ever. Okay. So what Elijah does when he's building up his altar is he's using stones. He's like, this is my family. These are the promises of God that he gave to my family. It's like he's saying... People, can you not see that you are worshiping some false God when the God of the universe has promised good things for you? And so he's building his expectations on the promises of God. And I will tell you that it is important that we always build our expectations of God on things he's promised and not on things that he hasn't. Now, the way that we know what God has promised is by knowing our scripture, knowing our Bible. That's what it's there for. And you can't always count on Pastor Eric to learn it and tell you about it. Like you want to learn it for yourself so that when you have an expectation, you can say, is that really something that God, that is in line with God's nature? And you know, because you know scripture, those promises about God wanting to meet our needs. He says, I, he says he will meet all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus because of Christ Jesus and what he did on the cross and our being adopted into his family. He says, I'll meet your needs. I have a question. If God promises to meet our needs, like done deal promised, your needs will be met. What's left to pray for? Have you ever thought of that? Our wants? Oh, no. Yeah, man, this is uh, this is some weird form of the uh, word of faith heresy. Similar to uh, Joel Osteen, but it seems to be mixed with some other elements. It's kind of a weird um, c- cocktail that we got going on here. Our desires? Because he's already like, I got your needs covered. Don't worry. He's told us like 40 million times. I got your needs covered. Don't worry. Don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll drink. The birds of the air need those too. And I take care of them. The ungodly worry about that, but your good father knows what you need. He tells you that over and over and over again. So if we're going to ask God for stuff, it's generally going to be the desires of our heart. One of our staff members shared that with me this week. And I was like, oh, I got to think about that. My desires? Because, you know, I grew up thinking God will meet just enough of your needs. You know? The desires of your heart. Well, Psalm 37, 4 says this, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Question, will he give you what your heart desires or will he give you desires in your heart? Messing with my mind. But I think when we're delighting in God, then he places within us the desire. And then we are moved to pray and ask him for it and expect it. And that's the conversation I was having with the lady after the first service. She was like, I wanted children so bad. And I was like, God, if you don't want me to have kids, why do I still have this desire so strongly? And so she kept expecting because the desire was still there so strongly. And I think sometimes God's kind of like, like we are as parents. You, You know, when you want to get your kid a certain thing for Christmas, They don't know they want it yet. So you start dropping hints. 
you're like, hey, yeah. you know what I saw a commercial for was that thing. And they're like, eh. and later on, you're like, you know, if you had one of those, that would be fun. And then, you know, later on, they're like, oh, you know, that thing, that's really cool. And eventually the kid's like, that's pretty cool. I want one of those. Christmas morning, you're like, they're like, I've always wanted that. <laughs> and you're like. But I think God does that. He puts within us a desire. And if it's a God-given desire in our heart as we're seeking to please him with our lives, what is wrong with expecting him to meet that for us? Base your expectations, build your expectations. Yeah, again, this has absolutely nothing to do with the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Like, nothing at all. ...on the promises of God. Next. All right, so now we are at then in verse 32, halfway through. Then he dug a trench. Okay, he's built the altar in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Lord. Okay, then he dug a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about three gallons. Weird. We'll get to that in a minute. Then he piled wood on the altar and he cut the bowl into pieces. I know gross and laid it on the pieces of wood. Okay. So what's happening next is he prepares the sacrifice. He puts the wood, cuts up the bowl and he puts it out there. Okay. So he's getting his, he's laying out his sacrifice. Now, Rewind just a little bit. The context of this story. This story comes at a place in the, in the history of Israel where they have had a drought for three years. So for three years, no rain, which means no crops, which means their animals don't have anything to eat much. So you can imagine that three years into a drought, they're hungry. And in this moment, he's like, I know the God, that the glory of God is going to show up today. I know that God is going to do something today. But he's like, but a bull? I'm hungry, man. No, he did not. That is ridiculous. You are aware that Elijah ate perfectly well for the entire three years. And he was even out of town, out of Israel, staying at a house of, you know, a a widow and her son. And, you know, they miraculously were provided, you know, flour and oil from God on a on an as need basis. They it never ran out. If there was anybody who wasn't hungry in all of Israel, it was Elijah. So no, he wasn't sitting there going, "Oh man, a bull, I could who am I hungry?" The text doesn't say that at all. And if you understand the full context of the story, you wouldn't be saying anything as preposterous as this. He's faced with a choice. Eat the bull, sacrifice it. Eat the bull, sacrifice it. No, he wasn't. The text nowhere mentions this. Mm, Stomach's growling. Oh, what do I do? I think it brings us back. To last week when Pastor Eric said that God, or the scripture actually says, that God gives us bread to eat and seed to plant. And any given opportunity, we can invest into something or we can consume it. And in that moment, Elijah made a choice. He decided to expect a return on his investment. Oh, that is just, this is ridiculous. Nowhere in 1 Kings 18 does it mention that. In fact, let me read to you what's in 1 Kings 17. 
1 Kings 17, verse 8, The word of the Lord came to Elijah, Rise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I might drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little jug of oil. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Well, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. Okay, now I bring this all up because what she's saying is absolutely ridiculous. What she's doing is eisegeting right now. She's putting something in the text that's not there. Nowhere in 1 Kings 18, you can't even find it in well in the Hebrew, in the word in the spaces between the words in the Hebrew or in the you know anywhere. Okay? Nowhere does it say Elijah was hungry and he was thinking about eating the bull, but he decided to invest it rather than uh, and, and by sacrificing rather than consume it. This is this is ridiculous. Again, proving Kelly Dykstra on two counts should not be preaching. Number one, the scriptures forbid it. Number two, as if number one isn't enough, she clearly doesn't know what she's doing. Expect a return on your investment. God always says that when we plant, we will reap. So in that moment, he decided rather than eating a good steak, which would really meet a need in that moment for him and the people around him, he said, I'm going to invest that into the glory of God. And I expect that God is going to give me a return on that investment. Anytime you invest in the glory of God. What was Elijah's return on that investment, by the way? Because after this, um, Jezebel decided that she wanted him dead, and he ended up fleeing for his life to Mount Horeb. And then when he got to Mount Horeb, you know, he basically asked to, you know, to die. And God basically said, get your affairs in order, go and uh, anoint Elisha, prophet, and uh, get ready. You're, we're going to bring you home. What was his, what was his uh, uh, earthly return off of the investment of the sacrificial bull? There will be a return. And we've got to thoughtfully lay out our sacrifice because you can imagine that in that moment you, you process through, you know, anytime we have, Oh man, this is getting worse by the minute <laughs> and see, you've got to thoughtfully lay out your sacrifice. I, I want to beat my head against something. This is horrible. An opportunity to be generous or to share with someone else or God's just moving us to do something. It's, it's a thoughtful thing that we have to process through. It's not just, oh, I'm going to throw that out there, but thoughtfully so that we know as we lay it out, we lay it out in expectation. We lay it out believing that God has told us to do that. And so that's what Elijah did that day. He decided instead of consuming this for myself, I'm going to lay the sacrifice out for God and he's going to get honor out of this. 
Okay, so here's next. Ready? Then he said, verse 33, fill four large jars with water. Okay, do you do understand that they're just, they're making a sacrifice that they're hoping that he's hoping God will rain fire on. Are you with me? Yes. Okay. So it's so logical that he says this next. Fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering in the wood. Okay. And then after they had done this, he said, do it again. And when they were finished, he was like, now do it a third time. So they did. And the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. And they were like, oh, that's why you dug a trench around that. That makes so much sense now. So Elijah has prepared stones, the promises of God, the wood for the sacrifice, the bull, everything's there for God to rain fire from heaven and show his favor and show his power. But first, let me pour water on it. I just have to say, if I were Elijah, I would have poured lighter fluid on it and stood very close with a cigarette. Right? And then been like, oh, God, thank you. You know how we are so inclined to make things really easy on God? Here, God, let me make it easier on you. I'm just going to lighter fluid, kerosene. That makes a big explosion, doesn't it, Eric? I was in the house and all the windows went. I came out the back porch. Eric and Brad are like, nothing. We have to expect God to do what only God can do. Expect God to do what only God can do. Our inclination is to try to use our own strength and to make it as easy as possible for God to show up. Here, God, here's some lighter fluid. Here, God. I don't even know what you're talking about. I I can't think of a single incident in my life where I went, I'm going to make it easier for God. I I just, I can't relate to this at all because this is not only just horrible mangling of God's word. I mean, this is almost, it's not that it's not loose. It's almost crazy in, in the propositions being put forward in this so-called sermon there's everything i can do and then maybe you can just real gently change something no he was like you know what i'm gonna prove to you that human effort has nothing to do with this i'm gonna pour water all over this so much that when the fire comes down from heaven nobody's gonna wonder if there was a trick nobody's gonna wonder if there was something that i did to make this work they're gonna know that the power of God and his favor came down from heaven and took that sacrifice. So we've got to expect God to do what only God can do. And I know that some of us right now, some of you may feel like you are just wet wood. And you are like, I am so far gone. There's no way. (laughs) Okay, this is narcissistic eisegesis now. So we've allegorized the wet wood, and now we've applied it to ourselves. Do you ever feel like the wet wood from 1 Kings chapter 18? (laughs) This is awful. This is one of the stupidest 
excuses for a sermon I have ever heard. That God can rain his favor and his power on my life. But I want you to know we have a God who specializes in lighting up wet wood. And he specializes in pouring his favor on lives that look like there's no way. That's what our God does. And that's what I think is in this story here. That's why I think it's there. He's like, it doesn't matter where you think you are. It doesn't matter if you... Did you read a single biblical scholar, uh, scholarly commentary on this passage? Like even one? Because it's like really unsafe for you, especially if you don't know what you're doing, to just think... You know, I think what this passage is about is this. This is Kelly Dykstra going, this passage means to me this thing. And then running with it and getting it totally wrong. Haven't made your life really conducive to the movement of God. He's like, I'll just come in and rescue you where you are. And you're like, but I feel like I pour water on my wood every day. He's like, it's okay. I'll burn it up every day. That's what God does. (laughs) Oh my, this is so, so lame. And you know, I kind of look like it, at it like he, he baptized the sacrifice. Elijah, he, it was like he baptized it. And that, that's kind of what baptism is like. It's like completely dying to any human effort. It's complete helplessness to do anything. You know, when you're under the water, you're near death. That pastor holds you under too long, you're done. And you come, and when you're, you're like, I got nothing. <laughs> Remind me to warn people not to be baptized at the crossing. By the way, though, odd that she would say that. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. There is a an illusion, a, you know, some typological, you know, type and shadow to baptism in the water. This is absolutely true. Um, it's just not panning out the way she thinks it does so we continue i'm powerless i'm under the water i'm powerless and then you come up and it's symbolic of new life in christ i want you to know that's grace so today if you're trying to do something with your human effort you're trying to stick lighter fluid on whatever's going on you're trying to make it as easy as you can for god to work in your life just know he's already done the work in your life just walk in it just rest in it just stand there and say fire fall down on me and he will he'll come and he'll no i don't want to pray that prayer i will never be praying fire fall down on me That's not a good prayer. That's a bad one. Consume your life and he'll give you power and favor that you never thought was imaginable because Jesus already paid for it for you. So expect God to do something huge that only he can do. Is that good? Yeah. I love that. Okay, so what's next? So what happens is he prays a prayer. He's like, okay, God, will you come and do this? And here's what happens. Immediately. The fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the bull. So he took the sacrifice. Boom. Got it. But he also burned up the wood, the wet wood. That was a nice touch. Except then he also burned up the stones and the dust and the water. That's cool. I mean, that's cool. Have you ever seen that happen before? I don't think so. Because what happened in that moment was 
Elijah had said, oh, you know what? I'm going to get it all wet, but God's still going to take my sacrifice. And God's like, I'll see your sacrifice and I'll raise you some wet wood and some stones and some dust and some water because now I can do that. And Elijah was like, yeah, yeah, take that Mm." in that moment. Because, you know, he was probably slightly afraid of looking stupid. Slightly. Aren't we always slightly afraid of looking stupid? Slightly afraid of looking stupid. The word of the Lord came to Elijah and he was afraid of looking stupid. There's no text that says that. No, not you, Chris. You're kind of BA though. So, I mean, I get up here. I'm slightly afraid of looking stupid tonight. But God just comes in and he's like, I got it covered. When you're making an investment in my glory, I will take that. I will honor that. I will put my favor all over that. You just trust in me to do it and I will. So I want to tell you this final thing. Expect the unexpectable. It's cliche to say expect the unexpected. So I said unexpectable. I'm not sure if it's a word. It is now. It's my word. Expect the unexpectable. There's no way that when Elijah prayed that the fire would fall from heaven, that he included in his thought process the idea of God sending fire to also consume the stones and the dust and the water. Hugh, sappy music. He was just hoping God would burn up the sacrifice. By the way, the sappy music is to create the false impression. It's a form of emotional manipulation. To create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now fluttered into the building and is getting ready to do business with the people there after hearing this inspirational message about expectations from 1 Kings chapter 18. Maybe the wet wood because that would be cool. And God was like, bam. And he did something far above what he could ask or imagine. So when you're expecting big things from God, don't limit it to what you can think of. Don't limit it to what you think is the answer. Just open yourself up to the fire of God and his power in your life. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) What do you do with something like this? So just open yourself up to the fire (laughs) It's preposterous. This is so bad. So once again, I want to remind you, God specializes in sending his favor and his fire on wet wood. (laughs) Oh, man. You are not in too bad of a soggy mess for God to come in and totally empower you to live the life he's created you for. Yeah, because that soggy wood, as soon as that fire fell, it it, uh, lived its purpose. Hey, this is so awful. And then I want to remind you of this. With this year of faith here and, and the time capsule thing and, you know, laying out what we're asking God for this year and then giving toward it and speaking it out. Just expect the unexpectable. Gather a crowd and say, God's doing something here. I'm not sure what it is, but he's going to do something great. He's going to do something great in your life. And it's going to be more than we can even come up with. I'm going to invite you to stand up. I don't know about you, but I've had little tastes here and there of the revolutionizing power of God in my life, but I would love more. Would you love more of God in your life? 
Would you love to see his fire fall in your life in a mighty and powerful way? No, I don't want to have fire fall on me. Would you love to see him bring healing to your body and healing to your marriage? Would you love to see him reach in and change your friends' lives? Would you love to see him show you a life that he's created you for that isn't just a struggle day in and day out? Would you like that? I'm just going to invite you to raise your hands right now. And we're just going to pray together that God's fire will fall on us in a powerful way. Jesus. All right, done. Oh, man, that was <laughs> that was embarrassingly bad. Good gravy. <sighs> I, I, I can't make any other comments. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely unbelievable and she you could tell they're trying to figure out what to do with the biblical gospel they that you know they were exposed to it and but they've mixed it with this other stuff and that the the concoction they've come up with is just it's like joel osteen meets stephen furtick and <laughs> oh it's awful anyway um <laughs> what did you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.